Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government event on levelling up and net zero. Really delighted to be back in a full room uh, debating the big issues that the government is facing uh, and thanks very much to Waits for sponsoring this event today. Um, so we hear an awful lot about levelling up and net zero, these twin animating missions of this government, um, but we hear less about how to bring them together. Um, and doing that's not necessarily going to be easy. Uh, we only need to look at past transitions, like the transition away from coal mining, to see that big changes in the labour market can, can present a real risk of scarring and, and sort of poor impact in communities if they're badly managed. Um, there is a big opportunity for boosting green industries and green jobs around the country, but it's going to take a lot of thought to sort of think through um, what are the labour market policies that we need to support those jobs in the right places, and we can have a a discussion about what the right places are and what we, we mean by that. Um, so bringing these two agendas is going to be a big challenge for the government. It's also going to involve many actors, so from central government departments through to you know, big local authorities, small councils, businesses and communities. Uh, much of this is going to need to be led locally, but there's going to need to be um, some, some major coordination from government and someone making some, some trade-offs as well. Um, so a lot to unpack. Um, we've got a great panel to do it. Um, got the Right Honourable Philip Dunn, MP, MP for Ludlow and Chair of the Environmental Audit Committee. Uh, Philip's one of the most active parliamentarians sort of scrutinising environmental uh, and net zero issues um, and his committee has done a, a bunch of really good recent reports and in inquiries um, on things like green jobs, buildings, uh, green steel uh, and much else. Uh, Julia Goldsworthy, uh, one, of, one of the UK's most experienced levelling up practitioners. Uh, former Director of Strategy at the West Midlands Combined uh, Authority, and she led negotiations over the region's uh, second Devo deal and its industrial strategy. Uh, before that, Julia was an MP and a Treasury Special Advisor and has had long-standing interests in devolution, inclusive growth, and place-based policy. Ros Belid, uh, Deputy Policy Director at Green Alliance, uh, a former environmental journalist, and, and before that at Make UK, the manufacturers' organisations are very relevant to today's discussion. Uh, and Green Alliance has also put out um, a bunch of really good reports on this topic, including a recent one on the green skills gap. And last but not least, Steve Beachy, Group Public Sector Director at Waits, uh, involved in many sort of real levelling up green projects on the ground, uh, from sort of housing to EV battery factories, which he's, he's going to tell us all about. Uh, Steve's responsible for uh, all of Waits' work with local and with central government. Uh, it's got 35 years' experience in construction and, and a long interest in sustainable building practices. Um, so a bit of housekeeping. So I'm going to start um, by asking my panel a few questions, but we'll have at least 30 minutes, at least half of the event, for questions from you in the audience, both in the room and online. Um, if those online want to start submitting questions on Slido, and do please read the other questions that have been submitted and upvote any that you like. Um, I'll bring those into the discussion. Uh, those in the room, just put your hand up in the old-fashioned way. Uh, and we'll also be tweeting the event using the hashtag IFGLevelingUp. Um, okay, so Philip, I'll start with you. Um, we've got the Net Zero Strategy. We've got the Leveling Up white paper. Uh, both of those have sort of sections that refer to each other in them. How far do you think the government has gone in sort of bringing these two agendas together, and where do you see the gaps? Well, as a committee, we have a, a remit which cuts across government departments uh, in, in everything we do. We tend, whenever we do an inquiry, we tend to have more than one government minister turning up to talk about it, uh, which just illustrates the fact that environmental issues uh, do not respect administrative boundaries, uh, and it's very difficult for governments around the world to work out how they're going to implement the net zero strategies that they're adopting. I think... We had the benefit as a country of hosting COP26, which put a lot of focus within government on trying to uh, decide what we needed to do and to develop the strategy for net zero Britain. And I think the one, the one point I would sort of pick to as a success is that the net zero strategy document, which eventually emerged uh, just ahead of COP26, I think it was published in September, um, ahead of the event in November, um, reflected some proper joined-up working to develop a strategy within across government. Um, of course, the harder bit comes in implementing that strategy and doing it in a way that uh, doesn't give rise to all sorts of other conflicts and pressures. And it often, as, as is normally the case, comes back to the question of resources, 
both cash and manpower, women power, people, to be able to implement um, uh, the, the strategies in a coherent way. And there, I think we're right at the early foothills of what needs to happen. Um, you, you touched on green jobs. Um, I mean, at the moment, there isn't a recognised definition of what a green job is anywhere. The ONS don't have one. Government talks about green jobs a lot. Uh, lots of companies talk about green jobs, but actually nobody knows what they mean by that. Mm. Or people may mean different things depending on who you're talking to. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a very long way to go uh, in in trying to bring coherence to the to how we implement net zero and how that then reads across to to levelling up, which I guess we'll be talking about. Mm. Um, and I can keep talking until you want to ask another panelist, so I probably better stop. Well, I think, I think the, uh, the, green, the green jobs point is a really interesting one. Rosie's colleague, Sam Alvis, has been making this, this point repeatedly, saying sort of what is a green job, and actually we need to sort of think about having a much broader definition than just thinking about wind farm engineer or, you know, whatever, actually sort of thinking about the very wide range um, across sort of a bunch of sectors. I just wonder what you think in... In Parliament, are these two issues, levelling up and net zero, are they being seen as quite separate? Are, there, are some M MPs sort of just interested in one or the other, or are you starting to see sort of them being debated? I think that's study? a really good question, and my answer to that would be that they, again, it's in the, the eyes of the beholder. So, to some uh, colleagues who are representing areas where they feel uh, they've had a lack of investment under successive governments for many years, their focus is more on the levelling up agenda than it perhaps is in some of the, uh, dare I say it, leafier suburbs where, um, where the, their electorates are more concerned about environmental matters. So there's a bit of a geographic divide about that. But let me make one point before I let um, somebody else answer the question. Uh, we as a committee visited uh, one of the members uh, of my committee's constituencies, Blythe, on the north northeast coast of Northumberland. Um, and we went there for lots of reasons, mostly focused on uh, the work they're doing. They've got the offshore wind catapult in Blythe. We, we're really focusing our meeting around that. But we had a presentation from British Volt, who have taken the 200-acre brownfield bare site that the coal-fired power station, uh, uh, which was at Blythe, used to uh, be located on. And the reason why they've gone there, A, because the land is available, it's brownfield, they will get planning permission to build the enormous sheds that they're planning to build. But, but critically, it has one of the interconnectors from Norway landing on the site, mm. or very accessible to the site. And that will be 100% green energy coming to the site. Mm. So it's a remarkable confluence of events, mostly stemming from the coal uh, history of 200 years ago in that part of Northumberland, where it's where they used to ship the coal out uh, across the country. Um, so it, it, for historic legacy reasons, it will be at the forefront both of levelling up and of generating you know, one of the core components of net zero transport. Mm, brilliant. Um, Julia, that's the kind of view from, the, the, from Parliament and from the sort of net zero perspective particularly. How does this question look from the, the local level? Do you think you're getting a kind of coherent view from central government as to what these two agendas mean for local actors? I think a lot of the motivation behind the interest in both of these agendas will be the same as, at a local level as, a, as nationally. Mm. Um, Philip's already talked about kind of the opportunity side of um, net zero and levelling up around green growth, and that will be really important to left behind places. But there's a just transition element to it too, so there is also a concern that kind of the most vulnerable people might end up bearing the brunt of the transition too. So kind of that motivation will be common whether you're looking at it at a national level or from an individual place point of view. Mm. And I think if you zoom out to 20,000 feet, there's very clearly a lot of ob obvious similarities in kind of the cross-cutting nature of these priorities, um, the relative importance that voters place on it, um, the fact that it's going to require whole systems approaches. Mm. Um, and then when you drill down a bit further, you can see that actually to deliver the emissions targets, half of the, the kind of cuts will need local decision making. So mm. they're just not going to be possible without local actors. Um, Philip's already talked about some of, you know, some of the most challenged places um, are heavily industrialised. So, you know, it has to be thinking about transforming the economy. And actually, some of the commitments that government has made around in innovation are going to help that shift in terms of um, channeling investment into those places. So I think places grasp that kind of the big growth opportunities and innovation opportunities are going to be in this space 
um, where there is a lot of interest and just kind of big drivers mm. of change. So there's that kind of golden opportunity and also a similar timeline. Mm. So COP talked about kind of a decade of delivery. We know the levelling up white paper is kind of setting targets for 2030. So all of those things, it kind of feels like it's a golden opportunity to get it right. But what I would also say is that maybe some of the frustrations are quite similar as well. Um, so kind of fragmented funding pots that are competitive and don't necessarily join the dots. Um, certainly from a levelling up perspective, it's quite a top-down view of how you deliver, deliver levelling up, um, which kind of doesn't necessarily take account of some of the institutional infrastructure that's already in place or um, the resources that are already in places and the commitment. So it's really difficult to zoom in in a consistent way to see how the national ambitions kind of drill down to what you might see at city region level and then at individual local authorities, each of whom will have their own mm. um, commitments. Um, both arguably are a bit short on the follow through in terms of resource, very high ambitions, not a lot of resource. Um, and I think, yeah, maybe just not that recognition of the, the powers and resources that are already in places that will help achieve those shared ambitions. Mm. Um, and I think it, it feels that there's quite a growing consensus that what is missing is a proper framework for how um, the centre and local, whether that's at a regional or local authority level, actually work together. Um, so, you know, we've seen from Innovation UK the work that they've shown that kind of place tailored, so systems in places approaches, as Philip talked about in Blythe, mm. um, will deliver better impact in terms of environmental and economic outcomes for places. Um, same from UK 100. So, you know, a number 10 delivery unit isn't going to be enough. Um, and the kind of forums that have been set up, you know, thinking about the genesis of levelling up and around the follow through on um, the net zero strategy, they're more kind of, they feel a bit more like stakeholder management sessions mm. rather than real opportunities to kind of clarify roles and responsibilities, go after resources, um, kind of, you know, shared data and analysis, all of that stuff. So for, for me, it feels like there really is still a paradigm shift required. Mm. Um, and that probably, you know, and that's on but locally and nationally. Centre needs to kind of accept that it can't control everything. Mm. And I think places need mm. to understand that kind of their relationship with central government isn't just about kind of trying to unlock resources. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think that's going to take a lot of work and we're still quite, quite a long way away from that. I mean, the opportunity is there but there's still lots to do to, to, fill, to bridge that gap. No, I think it's fair to say that there was a lot of good words in the net zero strategy yeah. about the role of local, um, but a lot of people who work on sort of local climate issues was perhaps a bit underwhelmed by the kind of, you know, yeah. the, the substance. I just wanted to ask you about this. I think it's a really interesting point about the sort of capacity to do place-based policymaking on, on these subjects sort of really well, because I think we've seen some some sort of healthy competition in a way between some of the, the powerful mayors around net zero. You know, I was really interested at Tory party conference, Andy Burnham was going around with his big leveling up bid saying I'll, I'll reduce uh, X million tons of carbon from, from the atmosphere and sort of making big pledges. We've seen Andy Street sort of saying Birmingham is going to be the EV capital of, yeah, of yeah. Europe and Ben Houchen sort of making his, his pitch around green industry. I suppose, A, do you think actually you need these kind of big strategic powerful bodies to sort of do that really effectively and then b do you think for sort of smaller councils and authorities do you think they've got the kind of capability the the expertise to do some of this place-based policy making at the moment there needs to be the space for a place-based conversation and i think where it gets really tricky in terms of um, capacity as much as anything else because of the way that these competitive funding pots work mm. as well is it's that kind of strategic convening capacity mm. to understand how you stitch stuff together and that is absolutely challenging at a kind of at a city region level but it, that, it, I, I can't see the place where there's the opportunity for that conversation um, in central government mm. so you know if you think about whether it's fiscal processes or the policy making process they kind of get segmented up into individual departmental conversations, which, you know, I've seen from the other side in the Treasury as well. Um, and then, you know, the, the risk is that places have to, like, if they, even if they can get their act together and agree a sh set of shared priorities, they then have to kind of make the case for each one individually, dependent on the department that it sits within, win that argument, and then hope that their department wins their argument on their behalf with the Treasury. And then at the end of that process, you get a bag of bits that you have to try and then stitch back together. Mm. So there's no, it's 
it's harder than it should be to have the kind of strategic conversation that Philip was talking about in Blythe, you know, where you've got this um, kind of set of ingredients that could come together in a magical way in a place, similarly in the West Midlands on um, kind of the future of mobility, where it's about the expertise and advanced materials, as well as um, kind of automotive, as well as the transport connectivity, all of those mm. things to put together that equation and recognise that they, it will deliver, you know, strategic investment will deliver more than the sum of its parts. That's the kind of, I think that's the cross-system capability gap that just needs supporting and mm. investing in. Mm. And, and just briefly, where do you stand on kind of the, the, the local authorities, combined authorities, do they need more powers to do net zero effectively? There seems to be some debate in the green world about whether it's actually about more powers or whether it's actually about, you know, getting these things like funding frameworks and things like that ironed out. Um, I suppose my default would, I, I think it's, I'm sure there's scope to do more with more powers, but I think the challenge should be both from a powers and a resources point of view, are we doing absolutely everything that we possibly can yeah. with what we've already got? And I think, I'm, I'm sure that the answer to that will always be no. And I think that's the risk in this kind of transactional relationship with government is that you, that, that bit of the, well, what have you already got and what can we do with it? That tends to be discounted for going after the, the new stuff. Okay. Um, Roz, you've looked awful sort of a lot of different aspects of net zero uh, at Green Alliance and do sort of really good stuff on, on a lot of the different policy challenges. I suppose what I'm wondering is where you at Green Alliance sort of see the biggest uh, opportunities for aligning this in gender and, and do you think government is missing any of those opportunities at the moment? Sure I mean I, I think the first thing to say is whatever metric you use for levelling up whether it's kind of educational skills, health, pride in place, Productivity, all of those, kind of, there are synergies with the net zero agenda. So across the board, these these are so aligned and kind of similar to Julia was saying. What's a little bit frustrating is to see two strategies that, in some ways, look so similar and have such parallels, mm. but really aren't as kind of integrated yet as they could be. Um, the real ambition and kind of yeah, the resourcing then and delivery is is more patchy. And actually, now we're seeing cost of living and energy security. Actually, a lot a lot of those are kind of agendas and issues are aligned along the same axes as well. You know, we want to bring down mm. costs through better energy efficiency and improve health. And there, there's some real opportunities there for taking in the next 10 years or so um, that, that do require that kind of central coordination that is challenging as, as, as discussed. And I mean, the real, the real risk in all of this is that net zero is the kind of where we're going to be in 2050. If we're not doing the leveling up work to match that, we're kind of it's, it, that we're risking kind of causing all sorts of future problems mm. anyway. So mm. Mm. completely important that we tie the two together and yeah, agree with what's, a lot of what's been said already about the challenges in doing so. Um, in terms of kind of where the biggest opportunities are, there's if, if, sort of spatially, I feel like there are three things. There's, the, there's the, the industries that will face a real challenge with transition. So North Sea oil and gas, um, heavy industries, steel making um, and others like that, and, and car making. And I think we you know, that, that, that recognition, there is at least a kind of recognition that we need to start coming up with policies and suggestions on those fronts. And it actually, the solutions and the new industries, which is my next category, kind of overlap quite significantly geographically. So there are some real opportunities there. You know, we've got the kind of industrial clusters in um, the northeast, northwest, which are also going to be where we centre the CCUS and where you can kind of take... take um, carbon and put it in carbon capture and storage facilities in the North Sea. So there's, there's some geographical link-ups and sort of the Midlands with its existing automotive mm. sector is both at risk but also a huge opportunity. So those two feel like they kind of, they really fit together and there is some, with some good strategic thinking, there are, you know, we can really tie, tie that kind of risk and opportunity piece together. Mm. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a skills challenge, there's a resourcing challenge, there's a kind of governance challenge on that too. I think the other bit though that, is the, is the cross-cutting challenges, right, the, that we need to get for net zero. So the um, energy efficiency and transitioning homes to kind of alternative heating, transport, and actually kind of critical to this agenda, not, not really net zero completely, but the kind of nature um, restoration of natural ecosystems and a more circular economy, which also support climate agenda as well. You know, those, those often get forgotten in this discussion, but all of those things need to be delivered everywhere, but can be focused more and in those areas where kind of jobs are needed and productivity and pride of place and we know the value too of kind of things like natural ecosystems for health so there's a real opportunity to kind of target those those things that that we have to do everywhere and kind of get them moving first in areas where we need those economic opportunities and some really good overlaps i mean blackpool is an example that came up where 
only I think a quarter of houses meet the current kind of A to C EPC mm. recommendations, and yet there's kind of employment challenges. Well, why not focus our retrofit actions in places like that, mm. or where you've got a lot of tradespeople in the in the kind of general workforce, mm. and build outwards from there rather than kind of seeing them as universal problems, um, transport, but yeah, being another one that needs to happen everywhere and um, there was mention of levelling up white paper but <laughs> still in terms of public transport at the same time we're seeing kind of local authorities not getting the funding they want for buses etc mm. at the moment so um, I, th I think kind of focusing those broad challenges on areas where we really need it but then you know mindful too of the of the, um, of the big single place issues too. Yeah that's fascinating and I just want to zoom in on that skills point yeah, in sure. particular because it feels like actually for getting to grips with this question Today, it's sort of one of the uh, leveling up and net zero skills is just one of the huge dependencies, really, in terms of how we make this um, transition. And I suppose, it, from the perspective of someone at the moment in the UK who is in one of these sort of high carbon mm. industries, um, I mean, you mentioned the fact that actually, you know, there is options for sort of transitioning and, and the green industries being in a similar location to where some of those are. Um, but do you think the government is sort of doing enough to of a, a big skills offer to kind of help? people make this transition and also just to, to Philip's point earlier I don't know if you have a working definition of what a green job is at Green Alliance but perhaps you can help us out um, I'm not I'm not sure that I can really in a sense I think I think it could be and this is the, the limitation right if we start talking about green jobs people feel excluded and mm. almost any job will have an element of green transition it's, it's an old story for when I was at Make UK I was phoning up manufacturers and spoke to one who made a kind of made centrifuges I don't think that's controversial to give away that detail. Um, and I said, you know, do you see any opportunities in the green economy? And he said, no, no. I was like, so what, what are you doing at the moment? What's the biggest business focus? And he said, well, everyone's trying to get us to make our centrifuges more energy efficient. And I was like, well, <laughs> what are in the green economy then? Yeah. And I think there is a real challenge about kind of keeping the definitions too closed and people not seeing themselves and yeah. their companies as part of that opportunity and that challenge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we could, we could, we we're at the very beginning of a kind of skills journey of spotting where the gaps are, where the transitions need to happen, supporting people. Um, we're just, you know, talking about this in the steel context, but in plenty of other areas as well about re real strategic planning needed, support needed for workers who take time off to retrain. Um, there's there's a, a kind of spatial plans that, that really kind of mm. dig down into what's needed where, and actually making sure there are really good quality jobs as well. It's kind of it's easy to think, well, there might be, a, you know. There's jobs in recycling, and there are. I wouldn't want to undermine those, but we also want to think about the kind of actually remanufacture is more appealing. Kind of that's mm. a more solid job. There's more, you know, it can be. It's thinking about how to really create those high-skilled, high-value jobs that people really value, and um, and point to those and kind of build those up as well. I think. Steve, I don't know if you'd define your job as a, a green job, um, <laughs> but but um, what do you see as the, the sort of big opportunities from from business like yours, sort of doing construction projects on the ground for for bringing these two agendas together? <clears throat> well, just by, by way of context, so as Weights a Business, we're a 125-year-old family-owned business, top 10 UK construction and property services um, <clears throat> uh, business. And we are sort of delivering these types of projects um, across the country. And it is incredibly exciting and it is an amazing opportunity because the, the, um, the opportunity particularly to connect the two um, essentially, net zero and leveling up are, are two sides of the, of the same coin. And, um, you know, I give an example of um, the work we're doing in net zero schools. So um, we're currently building six um, net zero schools in, the, in, in Lancashire and Greater Manchester. And they're also using, actually, modern methods of construction as well. So using off-site manufacturing, again, using factories in areas of leveling up to really drive that agenda. So, we're, so, we're, so the jobs look both local and also these factories are, are you know, focusing around um, you know, <clears throat> net zero construction in areas of leveling up. I think that's really, really important. Another interesting parallel with something that Philip mentioned is that we are actually a strategic partner with the um, sort of competitor of Britvold in terms of Envision. So Envision is another um, gigafactory um, in uh, Washington. Uh, it's a billion pound investment, very similar actually in context. And um, that's currently sort of, uh, you know, we're, just, we're just putting the final stage of that design and, 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 and into, our, into construction very soon. Um, that will be 750 construction jobs in an area of leveling up, but also really, really importantly, that's 6,500 
high-quality green jobs in terms of that factory. So I think, I think you really, really interesting opportunities like that to connect the two. The other, the other um, really important area, um, which Ros mentioned, is the retrofitting of housing. Mm. Um, and we're working with 19 local authorities and housing associations throughout the UK on 2,500 properties, making those properties net zero. And it's, really, it's a really important opportunity, really, to, 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 to upskill. Um, leveling up areas in terms of individuals, you know, you can train in that. Mm. And the thing is, it's such a huge opportunity because there are 29 million homes in the UK. 19 million of those homes need a lot of net zero uh, technology um, and, 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 and uh, stuff fitted to them. That means that from now until 2050, you need to you need to retrofit three homes every minute mm. from now until 2050. I mean, it's an enormous amount of work, which we can we can really you know uh, huge opportunities to to to, to upskill and employ people in in, in levelling up areas. Um, and then the other area is schools as well. 24,000 schools, you know, 90% plus of those need net zero retrofitting. Mm. There are 2,000 hospitals, they need the same sort of level of, of, of retrofitting. So there are, there are lots and lots of opportunities which, um, which I think are really, really exciting to connect the two mm. and, um, and, and, and make a big difference. Just on the, on the skills piece, for you as a business, and you've got all of these kind of different exciting projects and a lot of them actually requiring quite complex, sort of quite technical skills, do you find sort of recruiting, you know, bright graduates who have got these kind of trainings, is that sort of easy for you at the moment? Do you want to, do you need sort of see more of a labor force targeted towards some of these areas? I think, I think we, <clears throat> we're always trying to, 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 to make uh, the construction industry more attractive to, 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 to you know, all levels of, um, of, 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 of people entering the industry. Um, but we do, we do, we are finding there is still a lot of interest. Mm. I think the big issue, actually, as an industry, is again, um, you, to sort of going to the facts. You know, there are forty thousand people per annum that are young people that are coming out with construction-related qualifications. But there are only eight thousand jobs for those people. So again, if we can get a pipeline of, of net-zero projects sort of through, we can see we can then train and train more people. Um, and, and have more opportunities for these people to actually um, you know, get connected with work. Mm. And just briefly on the, the housing point you make, because I think it's, it's absolutely critical and sort of one of the, the really big parts of this question. I know you do a bit of, you do both sort of new build and, yes. and existing stock, that's right, isn't it? Yeah. With the existing stock, are you starting to see, you know, house, ho homeowners sort of get this and sort of think this is a really great thing to do to my home, I'm excited, I'm as excited about this as I might be sort of, you know, putting in a conservatory or <laughs> doing some <laughs> kitchen upgrades, or actually is that demand sort of building quite slowly? I, th I, think, I, think, it's, I think it's, it's moving reasonably, it's reasonably slowly. Um, what, what's interesting is that I think the recent energy um, price issues has definitely focused people's minds a little bit more on, well, actually, you know, there, there, there's a lot of benefits here. It's not just the right thing to do from a, an environmental point of view. It's also the right thing to do from an efficiency point of view in reducing energy bills. Mm. So there certainly seems to be a huge, a huge amount of interest that's been generated through that. Yeah, definitely. And, and in our IFG response to the energy security strategy, we noted that housing could have, could have been made more of. Um, I'm going to open it up to questions from the room, if anyone would like to put their hands up, if you have a question, burning question. Okay, oh, was, was that a hand? No. Uh, I'll, I'll bring in one from, s question at the back? Yep, please. If you could say who you are and, and where you're from. Hi, so I'm Rob from the British Property Federation. So um, our members like yourself see real synergy between levelling up, regeneration and net zero, um, improving lives and livelihoods. But Despite that, do you think the government really joined the dots? If you look at the Leveling Up white paper, there was very little mention to net zero. So what more can we do to try and get policymakers to speak to one another? Okay, brilliant. Any more questions from the room? Yeah, we'll take one down the front here. Thanks, Penny. Philip and Ros, I might come to you on that. Uh, Peter Campbell from the Business Services Association. Just looking at the... Um, funding streams for levelling up in particular, um, I guess one of the current ones is UK Shared Prosperity Fund, mm. and I'm just wondering what um, capacity, willingness, ability there is if local authorities will be in the lead on that. 
kind of people side of it um, in terms of green jobs and skills, however, defined, and the, and the communities and places side, and obviously then private sector inputting into those, into those schemes as well. Okay, brilliant. Philip, I might start with you on the, the first question. Sure. So, and, and I'm going to link that to what Steve was saying. So, um, we did a, our committee did a report into energy efficiency in existing homes. So, I, I recognise the numbers that Steve's been using. Uh, hope, hopefully, you plucked them out of our report. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that is very starkly different about the way that we've been, as a, as a country, um, uh, trying to retrofit our existing homes compared to our peers in Europe, so Germany, France and Italy, have all been uh, charging down this route of retrofit much more rapidly than we have. Um, and heat pumps is a good example of about the, the join, uh, joining up government. Now, there is a government target to, introduce, to get to 600,000 heat pump installations a year by 2030. The last year for which I've seen the data was 2020, which was a stalled year for obvious reasons. Uh, the figure was 32,000. The government ambition is that half of this will come from new houses, so under the future home standard, which we're still waiting to implement. Uh, 2025, it's due to come into effect. The, the Part L, I think it was, uh, regulations comes into effect later this year in three or four months' time. Um, but uh, to get from 32,000 to 600,000 would, would require uh, an uptake, and Steve mentions three a, three a minute. Yeah. Um, uh, it would also it would re it require a huge um, commitment from householders, developers, local authorities uh, to do this, but, but it would also require a massive change in the skill base of the installers. So I was delighted to hear there are 40,000 people being trained um, coming into the construction sector, but I wonder how many of those are trained to install heat pumps. Um, and in our inquiry, we established that there are 100,000 companies with, uh, in, which have a certification for installing gas boilers. Mm. There were 1,200 companies uh, which were certified to install heat pumps uh, under the Trustmark scheme, which was required for the Green Homes Grant uh, scheme, which was one of the reasons why it was such a shambles, because there was not the workforce to be able to introduce the heat pumps mm. at the pace at which the government wanted it to happen, and that reflected a lack of, uh, of durability of the scheme. So by having a very short life scheme, there wasn't enough incentive for the companies to go out and train the people to do the work to be able to apply for the vouchers. So it was a sort of, we were in a vicious rather than a virtuous circle mm. in that particular project. Um, so it's not all about money, because a lot of the funding for this is going to come from, uh, from the private sector, from householders, from developers, uh, well, from architect, it starts probably with architects, well, the client, the architect, agreeing that it, we need to have build zero carbon homes, so how do we do it, uh, and how do we then fund it with the, with the mortgage providers. There's a, there's a big eco sort of structure around, uh, around all of this construction industry, which I think is the source, so I, I'll stop talking about this, um, which is the source of the, of the main, um, I think job creation is likely to come in your sector, Steve, yeah. because of the scale of the challenge that you very well articulated at the beginning. And that requires you know, not just universities to change some of the degree courses so that they cope with this stuff. It requires every technical college in the country to be able to produce courses that will generate electricians rather than plumbers. We need yeah. plumbers. But somebody who's going to install a heat pump needs the electrical qualifications rather than the plumbing. So you, it is not a straight read across. Mm. It's about certainty as much as it is about resources, isn't it? So mm. like thinking about some of the conversations that happen about adult education budgets um, locally is they want to train people with skills for jobs that exist today, mm. not jobs that might exist mm. a few years further down the line. So I suppose it's just what are the institutions or investors that can provide that certainty that people know that those jobs will be coming. And I think that's where, so in South Yorkshire, some really interesting conversations starting to happen with housing associations saying, how can we be the anchor investor that can then connect up with the skill system to help kind of, you know, do that gear shift to make sure that we're creating the jobs that we know are going to be coming rather than the ones that we hope might be if behaviours change a long way down the line. Mm, that's a really interesting point. And I think yeah, there's a really interesting question about how, yeah. Got to ride the wave, basically. Yeah, yeah, and whether you're actually doing enough to build the supply chain mm. in a local area and giving enough certainty for that. I mean, I know everyone had huge frustrations with the Green Homes grant. Your committee wrote about that, and I'm sure from 
from the sort of supplier perspective, that was very frustrating as well to see a very sort of short-term scheme after kind of years of, of, of looking for something. Um, I was interested, Philip, that you mentioned the international examples because I think there is a big piece of work to do there actually to look at Germany and the sort of KFW scheme, to look at this Italian scheme that we read about, which is having some really big results but looks quite expensive. Um, there have also been some other failures. It's not just the UK. Australia's had its policy failures on this. I think there's a scheme in Scotland which is being scrutinised as well. So there's, there's an interesting piece of work because it's actually just enormously complex to get mm. you know, all of these different um, components working together. Mm. And a lot of it will depend on the ownership structure of housing and countries yeah. have very different mm. patterns of ownership. Uh, Germany and France have got some quite imaginative uh, low finance um, schemes yeah. running from mortgage companies which provide zero finance. Uh, funding to do retrofits at the scale which is required for individual properties, so it's sort of 30 to 50,000 euros, something of that order of magnitude, uh, which is frankly what it will cost to get many of the 19 million uh, homes that you refer to, Steve, up to scratch. Mm. Whereas the CCC, well, one of the, I, I very rarely criticise the CCC and certainly rarely publicly, uh, but I'm going to because uh, <laughs> their like report. The I had an average cost estimate of £7,500 mm. for home retrofits. Mm. Now, at the moment, you cannot buy a heat pump in this country for £7,500. Mm. So it's, it, it, it was relying on some sort of averages working on the basis that a, a huge proportion of the 19 million homes will be solved by putting in loft insulation. Mm. Most of the loft installations have been done, frankly. Mm. Uh, not all of them, but a, a large part of them. And that's just ignoring the big challenge for housing pre-1919 or mm. pre-1980 probably um, where there is we, we don't have cavity walls we don't certainly my constituency hasn't had very many houses built since 1980 mm. and most of them were built before 1900 and they're going to cost a great deal more to retrofit if you're allowed to because of course listing listed buildings I'm pleased to have a lot of those in Ludlow. Welcome anybody watching to come to Ludlow and see the magnificent townscapes that we have there. Um, great place to go on holiday, not a great place to live in insulated buildings. No, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, just to not, to, not to defend CCC colleagues, but I think one of the really difficult things actually is trying to model this with any sense of precision when we don't know if this is going to be done street by street. We don't know if it's going to be done on an individual basis. It's very hard to sort of have any sense of how much these costs could actually come down and what's realistic. Ros, I just wanted to bring you in both on this housing question because I think it's really interesting the, the different policy levers that, that have to be sort of brought together on it, but also back on, on the question over there about actually is government doing enough to sort of align? I mean, yes, it's interesting to see the levelling up white paper talk about quality of housing and yet not recognise that the huge challenge in kind of making warms comfortable and, and cheap to run, which, mm. yeah, does feel like a, a massive kind of disconnect um, and in terms of so I mean we'd definitely like to see kind of more connection there and I, I think it feels like a sort of an ongoing skepticism from Treasury about giving money out in this area but I mean as as yet the government hasn't committed all, all the spending that it promised in the in the manifesto so there is there is some spending it could do quite upfront and kind of with just fulfilling existing commitments um, and it doesn't all need it's not all about kind of government funding, and I think there is potential for it to be much more kind of imaginative. And we've got a lot of research, and yet we somehow seem to just kind of forget that we know about different categories of households, forget how to do this smartly. There are some other framework issues, for instance, areas don't still know which kind of whether they're more likely to perhaps see some hydrogen heating or whether they're actually not very suitable for that. So there's some that I feel sometimes is quite a big blocker for local areas as well. But there's some easy wins too. You've got kind of off-grid houses that you could just crack on with straight away as well. Um, why, not, why not start there? So, yeah, I think we just need some more sophisticated thinking. And, I mean, there are some great models out there for finance as well, the kind of energy sprung model where you can, which is innovating in terms of components which are factory built and kind of precision and then just fitted very quickly. You can do whole streets. And in the financing of things like that where you buy heat as a service. So I, I would just like to, yeah, see another level, the whole sort of whole agenda move up another level and mm. kind of somehow it feels like we need to modernise the kind of retrofit discussion considerably yeah. to me. No, I, I think that's right. I know the Green Finance Institute have been doing a lot of work on the sort of green mm. mortgage area and we've got about 30 or so of those available in the UK at the moment, but it still remains very niche sort of yeah. financial product that sort of only very keen people are... Sort of but that also, I mean, if you're smart, that's the point at which people are moving houses. It gets over this hassle factor as well. Mm. So just bearing in mind why people are and aren't 
retrofitting their houses. Steve, did you want to come in on this, this housing question? Because I think it is awfully complex getting all it the is, levers you need, isn't it? It is very complex. I mean, so there's a few things that yeah, I'd like to talk about. I think, I think, first of all, actually, just on new build net zero, we, we, um, we recently uh, developed a net zero housing project with Cardiff City Council, uh, 200 homes, and they've recently just been completed, and they literally sold like hotcakes. They were sold within, within weeks, um, all of them. Um, and um, what's interesting there is, is that the city council, and it goes back to probably, I know it's not a mayoral authority, but it's, 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 it's interesting on a devolution sort of level, because, because obviously it costs more money to, to, to construct a net zero home. Mm. So from a, from a sort of capex, capital expenditure perspective, it costs more. But on a operational expenditure, obviously it costs a lot less. So I think another, again, I mean, we don't know if we're going to talk later about the treasury, but I think looking at things from a from a total expenditure perspective, take into account both considerations is exactly what we need because it's Can not going to work. Can you that for us, Steve? What costs more? Less Say around 25% more for a, for, a, for, a, for a net zero um, house versus a not net zero. So, so I have a, a, a social uh, housing association in my constituency who has built a, a small development at passive house standard and yes. they said that that costs 30% more mm. uh, to construct. And I went to see the tenants a year after they'd moved in, and they were saying that their energy bills were 10% mm. of what they had been from their previous the, home. That, £10 pounds exactly. a month. This I, was before the energy crisis. <laughs> but they were paying £10 pounds a month as opposed to £100 pounds a month. And that's the point. So, so with, with, net, with net zero homes, you, you, in, you insulate, you know, fabric first approach, you insulate the level where it actually doesn't need much energy to heat the home. And, and, and it's much, much more efficient. And the interesting thing with these net zero homes in Cardiff is they have a battery, similar to how you have an electric vehicle, um, and uh, that has quite significant capacity. So all of the PVs and the heat pumps that are then installed, it's ground source heat pumps in that particular new build development, but they're then bringing that energy into the battery cell and then, and then exporting it back out to, na to the national grid. So that's a really interesting point. Just on, on retrofit housing, it's quite a complex area and needs, you, can't, you don't just go around fitting heat pumps or just fitting PV um, panels on the roof. You need to survey the property, work out whether it needs insulation on the, on the walls, on the roof, um, whether the doors and windows are up to standard, and then also look at uh, heat pumps and, um, and, of course, boilers is a critical area mm. as well. Mm. Uh, the other interesting thing, is also, of course, is mentioned in the, in the um, green energy strategy from the Prime Minister, is this issue about hydrogen and also local um, power generation. So, again, sort of micro-nuclear reactor plants in, in towns to then, to then create energy locally, mm. which is a controversial thing, very controversial. And then, of course, do, you know, has hydrogen got a, got, 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 got a future to play in terms of putting hydrogen through the, um, through the, the, the gas pipelines mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of gas? And, of course, that's got a long way to go in terms of safety and whether it's going to work or not. So, yeah, so it's mentioned a lot in that, in that plan, but I'm not too sure what, mm -hmm. what future that has at the moment. No, it's, a, it's a really interesting back and forth on, on the new build because I think actually where we get these houses built and how they're built and who's involved is a really interesting question for net zero and for leveling up. Um, and I think, you know, I, I agree with you, Philip, that heat and building strategy in terms of the sort of ambition in terms of the future home standard, I mean, we're still going to be building homes that will need to be retrofitted for the next sort of two, three, four years, um, which, is, which is quite a frustration, I think. Uh, Julia, I want to uh, come back to you on this gentleman's question on the, yep. the shared prosperity fund. So there is this issue of, you know, these kind of strategic funds and how they're available and how they can be used by local actors. Yeah, and I think um, kind of considering how long we've been waiting to get to this point and kind of the way in which expectations have been managed, I think where we are now is that it's still not clear that this is going to be a mechanism that will really galvanise change. Um, having said that, and to link it back to the, can we please get all the policymakers in a room, um, there are some seeds of opportunity in the levelling up white paper. If you look at the kind of structural framework of the different levels of um, kind of the devolution journey for different parts of England, um, that maybe will provide the forum for those more strategic conversations around how some of these funds and others are deployed. So, you know, I think the challenge then is how do we, how can places be supported in 
absolutely getting the maximum value out of those of creating and supporting those kind of forums, which I hope will get some of the policymakers in the room. And then at a national level, um, you know, how I, I suppose we don't get a lot of visibility as kind of um, bystanders to the process, but one would hope that the levelling up cabinet committee which kind of has representation at senior level from across the whole of government and is meeting, I think, at least weekly, that should absolutely be the forum where there is the opportunity to, to join up those dots. The question then is, how do those local forums and that national one join up? Yeah, more frequently than the Net Zero <laughs> Cabinet <laughs> Committee, from what, from what we understand. Um, we're getting a lot of questions on the, on the local, so I'm going to stick with you, actually, uh, okay. Julia. Um, so we've got one here, um, someone who hasn't provided their name, but they're, they're asking about community engagement. And they're sort of saying, um, how do we ensure we bring communities along this journey, ensure they both have a say and a stake in achieving, achieving levelling up yeah. and net zero? And I think what is quite interesting is when you look at some of the polling, so like where the citizen view is on all of this. Yeah. Um, so there's been some onward polling out quite recently saying that despite everything else going on, net zero is still a really important citizen priority. Mm -hmm. um, Leveling up, it's been quite challenging to define, but it feels like there absolutely is that sense of priority of people. You know, ultimately, this agenda will be judged on whether people feel that their lives and their communities are better. Mm. That's quite difficult for government because that could be a really broad spectrum of things, mm. which might be way beyond their control. Mm. Um, so I think citizen voice and kind of priority is really important. And just thinking to some work that um, I'm supporting the Bravatnik School of Government in this space in South Yorkshire. Um, and how important, not just kind of interventions and capital spending and all of this stuff is, but actually it's the kind of more intangible stuff about um, narratives about places and animal spirits and kind of people's individual ambitions for themselves, but also for their communities. Mm -hmm. So how can places have that conversation, which is about redefining the narrative of, of what they are, of their potential and and their ability to kind of contribute to and benefit from some of that future success. Mm. So I think that's um, will be really, really important for levelling up um, and because it will be how individuals just define success. Mm. And there's some really interesting work going on in that space. Mm. And um, yeah, and I think that, that polling from onward actually showed that support for net zero has been remarkably robust, yep. actually, through COVID, through the co current cost of living crisis, and even in red wall seats, despite what some of Philip's colleagues might say about the cost of net zero, you see that really sustaining and, and actually you know, quite a degree of concern about any idea of dropping. I was on a panel at Onward last week. I should, probably shouldn't say that in these august uh, halls. But, uh, <laughs> We're very clever. Talking about yeah, that, and, and the point was made, that, which was actually touched on earlier, I mean, the, the, the consequences of the energy and cost of living crisis that we're now living through is focusing people's minds on the cost of filling up their car to go on a journey. Uh, so people, there's been an upsurge in interest in, in non-fossil fuel cars. You know, there are currently 200,000 electric cars mm. on our streets, 39 million internal combustion engine vehicles on our streets. There's a long way to go. But likewise, you know, the cost of heating uh, is becoming a very real issue for people and therefore much more interest mm. in, in taking... And bring, it's, it becomes personal. If you can you know, have a personal vested interest in reducing your, your cost of living by undertaking green investment, then why wouldn't you look at it? And Philip, just on that point that Julia raised about the, the sort of cabinet committees that are being used to coordinate this in central government. Sorry, this is a very IFG <laughs> point of me to raise, but do excuse me. Um, I mean, do you think that kind of central machinery for sort of levelling up and net zero is, is sufficient at the moment? Well, I have a bit of an issue with competitive tendering for, for project funding. Uh, it, I can see why government does it, because mm. you can, that way, you hopefully get the best projects funded. Mm. But for much of the levelling up agenda, what we're actually trying to do is to level up large parts of the country. And if it's competitive, if you, don't, if you miss out in the project, mm. you're not going to be levelled up at all. And the, the illustration, uh, which was, is freshest in my mind, is the bus back better strategy, mm. um, where I think the bus improvement plan uh, distributed just over a billion pounds, I think 1.4 billion. Um, it was originally, there was a manifesto commitment for 3 billion. The bids that came in were for 7 billion. So surprise, surprise, you know, roughly one-sixth of the bids were funded. Mm. And so five-sixths weren't, including Shropshire, I regret. Mm. Mm. And that, I mean, that comes back to the role of the Treasury as well, because I know an awful lot of Whitehall departments have been arguing for more sort of long-term 
strategic approaches to funding and not necessarily winning that, that argument with the Treasury. I'm going to open it up for more questions from the room. I'm just going to ask one question from Slido. Sorry, that was a, I went a bit early there, but I was giving you a moment to think <laughs> about your, your questions. Um, Julia, this is for you again. Um, Simon Guillaume from the UCL um, Public Policy Institute. He's asking about basically sort of sharing of lessons between local authorities. Is there a lot of collaboration happening? Are you kind of joining up at that local level? Um, so I probably have less direct experience of local authorities, but at um, the mayoral combined authority level, there absolutely are those forums to kind of have the conversation around shared priorities, mm. shared experiences. And I'm sure now that I think there will be a lot of local authorities who can now see the pathway that they need to follow um, to, to kind of follow on the, the framework set out by the levelling up white paper. I'm sure that those conversations absolutely will be happening and it will be you know, sharing the good experiences and also some of the, the frustrations. Yeah, brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Emilien Gask from the EU delegation to the UK. I cover climate and environment. I had a question on the planning bill. Uh, from the little we know about it, how do you think it will fit with the Environment Act agenda and possibly the leveling up agenda? Okay, brilliant. Take the lady at the back. Thank you. Uh, Olivia, Associate Director at Ipsos. Um, we all know that uh, net zero and leveling up are massive challenges, especially taken together uh, despite all synergies that are challenged uh, around bringing them together. Um, and we also know that leveling up in particular will require a lot of at active effort from local authorities. And Julia touched upon um, that. Uh, and on the other hand, local authorities, we all know, are particularly stretched for resources and capabilities. Julia mentioned um, um, the need for uh, greater efficiency at local authority level, not only pumping resources into that, and also the need for a framework uh, for central government and local governments to work together. I was interested to hear more about um, your and other uh, panelists' thoughts about what is the role of central government and what is the role of local authorities to sort of plug that, that gap and um, face that challenge together. Okay, how, how do we define the role? And yeah, I'll take one more question there. Uh, thank you, my name's Jasmine and I work for um, Department for International Trade. So my question is um, targeted for us. Um, you mentioned how uh, metrics for leveling up, can there's opportunities for those to be more aligned with um, net zero metrics. And I just wanted to hear more, um, like what do you mean by the opportunities? Brilliant. Okay. Um, Ros, I'll come to you first. Um, well, I'll let you choose which questions you want to answer. Um, one quick thought. Sorry. Yeah. I'm with you. The first, what was the first question? First, first one was on the planning bill. Planning bill. Um, I'll leave that. I mean, mine's something is it's now going to be a leveling up bill, potentially, but no one's quite sure. Just one quick thing on Wait that. Wait and see what Michael goes yeah. thinks. One quick, so I've asked from that is to really integrate transport and transport solutions um, with um, with planning so that we're, we're really planning for communities that are kind of centred around public transport um, and, and can, people don't need a car straight up. So that's a kind of one main ask from us on that one, but um, very uncertain as to what's actually going to appear. On local authorities, my, my slight concern on a personal level, we did some anonymous interviews with local authorities last year. There's, since then, we've had the net zero strategy come out, which seems to kind of support and levelling up white paper as well, those that have those that are able already and the kind of there might be more aggregated more long-term funding they might be they have a kind of seat at the table with government there's, there's slightly more kind of resource available and suggestions they should do kind of transport planning etc I, I worry slightly there's a sort of long tail that's going to get even further behind if they haven't got that basic resource and skills up front so that's my slight I'm, I'm pleased that those that are kind of really keen and engaged are being empowered a little more but I'm I am concerned about those left behind and then finally in kind of um, opportunities, I mean, offshore wind is the usual example, um, you know, there's, there's, but there's others as well. And I, th I think the UK has a kind of history of, of being quite involved in early innovation on new technologies and then kind of missing out later through not kind of upscaling at speed. And I, mean, I keep mentioning steel, that's because we're doing a project on steel and just seeing the rate at which European steel committees, um, companies are committing to new hydrogen production methods. Um, and creating a market for hydrogen as well, and those companies that want to produce them in the UK is kind of taking some time to decide what it's going to do on that front um, and supporting the steel industry and transitioning. 
likewise the industry too is kind of was a bit of a standoff. Um, so I just think again we, we just keep seeing these opportunities and potential opportunities to be kind of early involved early in the new technology and build opportunity from that kind of slipping through our fingers and yeah there's, there's definitely a role for kind of trade policy and things to support that too. Great. And Jasmine, just say if, if you're interested in the levelling up metrics, I, I should point mm -hmm. you towards my, the colleagues of mine have uh, written a report looking at those, those metrics. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the short um, conclusion was um, too vague, some not ambitious enough, some too ambitious. <laughs> um, but Steve, uh, do you want to come in on just, any of this? Yeah, it's good to be able to quickly respond to some of those points. I think planning bill, really, really important. If you want to really get the housing moving, we need to have some relaxation and planning. Mm. And if we really want to sort out town centre regeneration and really, really get to the heart of that with brownfield regeneration, some planning reform would be really, really helpful and would, 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 would expedite that sort of, that sort of work. Um, in terms of um, central and local government, and again, I think, I think it's about, we need pipeline and we need, we need a sort of long-term direction. So I think central and local government working together is really important in a joined up way but uh, but i think when it really comes to delivering leveling up we do need that local leadership and connection with the communities it's absolutely fundamental um which links in really with the final point around measurement um if we look at so at the moment in terms of social value for example working communities we work with communities all around the uk huge efforts made around providing you know, lots of added value from a, from a, from a local um, community perspective. But there's no consistency in terms of how we measure some of these things. So, so I think uh, you know, perhaps working closer between private and public sector to get some real clear measurement around what, what we're actually going to be measuring around leveling up and net zero connected into that. And then we get the data, because one of the problems we always have is the data is not, 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 not effective and not measured correctly, and then we have trouble analysing it and assessing what we're doing. So some real consistency in the data as well would be really, really helpful. Brilliant. No, that's really important. Um, Philip, I want to come to you on planning, if you could uh, let us all know what's going on there. Well, I, I, I scrutinise the government. I don't write the policy. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I don't have any particular insight as to what's going to be in the planning bill. We've been calling for some acceleration of sort of infrastructure planning, as Steve was calling for. You, Steve touched on nuclear. I don't think we're going to have small modular reactors for every town, Steve. I think that would be unbelievably controversial. But what I do want to see is an acceleration of the planning process for infrastructure projects yeah. so they don't take decades just to decide we're going to do it or not. Mm. And in particular, in, in relation to nuclear, we know that the, the existing uh, uh, fleet of uh, nuclear facilities have got skill bases around them uh, and communities that want them so that's where they should go and that's clearly the direction of travel at the moment but there need to be more um, can i just pick up on the metrics point uh, one of the th things which is actually to do with net zero rather than leveling up but one of the things that came out of cop 26 was a need to develop metrics for government at a government level which allows people to compare uh, what's happening in one country versus another. And that needs to flow down through local authorities, as, uh, as Steve and Julia were, were describing. Uh, sorry, Ros were describing. Um, uh, I've seen one example where that is beginning to happen, and it's not to do with planning, but it's to, well, it is indirectly to do with planning. It's to do with nature. Uh, so there is a blight at the moment on a whole series of catchments where the nutrient load in our waterways is damaging uh, uh, wildlife and there is uh, there's unable to be any development consented by local authorities because any additional housing is going to lead to uh, work and aggravating that problem. Uh, so the government is through Natural England is establishing frameworks with those local authorities so that they can identify you know for every extra house you build mm -hmm. it's going to have this impact on the phosphate level in that waterway and this is is now capable of a bit of data analysis and science, which I think will allow us to unblock that, but it absolutely relies on uh, getting the metrics right um, at that micro level. Just briefly, for, before I come to Julia for a last word, uh, onshore wind, not relaxing planning around that as part of the energy security strategy was sort of trailed and then uh, squashed mm. from the opposition. Missed opportunity? Pass. <laughs> so Julia. Um, just on the capacity point, I mean, um, local government has been under massive pressure for the last decade. 
um, and with increasing pressures on statutory services, it's always the kind of more discretionary strategic stuff that has felt the squeeze that has been put under even more pressure by the kind of process that Philip described by these competitive funded pots where, you know, huge amounts of energy and resource going to building bids, which um, then may or may not succeed. And then even if you are successful, um, it's a really fragmented kind of um, assurance and monitoring and evaluation regime. So there was um, a skills capital project in Wolverhampton that I used as an example in my time at the Combined Authority. It was putting together, I think, um, town deal funding. It was putting together skills capital funding. Um, community, it had five different funding streams that it had to play funding Jenga with, including kind of some more flexible resource from the combined authority to stack this project up. Mm. And then each one of those had a different reporting and accounting stream that had to demonstrate the value add that that particular element of the funding blend contributed rather than the overall benefit of the whole project. So there's this kind of absolutely bonkers stuff, which is making, like, which puts a a kind of capacity constrained, constrained bit of the system under even more pressure. Um, one thing I would just say where things are beginning to change, so it's not just the Treasury that hold all the strings on all of the money. There's some kind of arm's length funding bodies where there is some really encouraging stuff around just um, some of their behaviours changing. Um, so some really good conversations with Arts Council England where bits of the black country were just not getting Arts Council funding because the pipeline of projects wasn't coming forward rather than it just being a well we're just here to assess the projects it's your problem if you're not delivering that pipeline they worked in partnership with people in the region to then well what can we do to build the capacity so that those better projects so to, to address some of those inequalities and you know that's what the research councils that's what innovate uk is going to have to do in order to be able to deliver on the kind of um, ambitions that government has set out about where they think research fund, how, it, how research funding is going to be distributed in future as well. So, you know, that it's going to have to be tackled from lots of different angles, I think. Okay, brilliant. Um, that's all we've got time for. Um, thank you uh, very much to everyone. Sorry I didn't get to everyone's questions. Uh, and thanks to everyone who submitted them online. And sorry I didn't get to all of those. Um, we will be having lots more events on Net Zero and levelling up here at the IFG along with everything else, so please do come back for those. Um, just remains for me to say thank you to Waits uh, for sponsoring this. Uh, thank you very much uh, to my brilliant panel and thank you to you for coming. Thank you. <laughs>